You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato with Redneck Properties. And today we have a very special guest here with us, uh, Steve Wallace, who is the founding attorney of the Wallace Law Group. He's in the uh, West Palm Beach area of uh, sunny Florida, uh, one of my, <laughs> my favorite states, and uh, has a over a 20-year uh, legal career. And he primarily focuses on commercial and residential real estate and business transactions. He's done, he's done distress transactions, bankruptcy, and other commercial litigation matters. But today we're going to talk about um, due diligence practices as, it's, as it relates to specifically apartment buildings, uh, multifamily, um, in general, what you need to look for um, as a, a buyer, as a sponsor, as an operator, and also from the lender's perspective, whether that's through um, an agency lender, whether what that means is it's backed by the federal government, uh, Freddie and Fannie Mac, or, or from a local bank or a bridge lender. So he's going to provide some uh, pretty interesting perspectives on what they, they look for when, um, you know, uh, underwriting a multi- commercial multifamily transaction. So Steve, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Anthony. I appreciate it. Great. So when uh, I get, so what do you, you represent a very different clients, but for a, uh, I guess on the multifamily side for a multifamily operator, whether they're just starting out or they're experienced and they are looking at, you know, deals that are very different price ranges. So any, anywhere from a million to a hundred million. Does the process of due diligence change uh, depending upon how big the deal is? I mean, I I generally, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I I generally, when I'm representing a client, I try to, you know, I don't look at the dollar values and I I always try to, we, you know, generally what we do is ideally we're involved in the negotiation of the contract because it's, it's also very important to put in your contract certain requirements and the ability to, you know, conduct an extensive due diligence on the acquisition. Um, generally we have a standard, uh, checklist, which we're, I'm, I'm confident that we'll walk through, um, today. Um, but I, I generally treat every transaction the same. We try to have all, all of the same requirements that we would have for a hundred million dollar, uh, transaction for a million dollar transaction. Certainly, um, you know, oftentimes when you're dealing with non-institutional investors, especially like a mom and pop type of owner of a, of a, of a, you know, a smaller a multifamily, they may not have all the records and the documentation that we're looking for, but certainly we, we try to approach everything holistically and, and, you know, employ the same techniques on each type of transaction. Awesome. So could you talk about a contract? So what's the process for a multifamily operator when they evaluated a property, they underwrote it, which means they conducted their own financial due diligence to see if the project's even feasible to move forward with the investment. The next steps would be making an offer and then what we know as the PSA or purchase and sale agreement gets put together, which I'm sure you help out with. Mm -hmm. Um, What are the typical terms for due diligence that you see for multifamily projects in terms of timing and some of the other uh, common terms you see? I mean, oftentimes there, there's market guidelines as it relates to the timing, 
but generally I don't feel comfortable having my clients have anything less than a 60 day due diligence, but certainly, you know, depending upon what the market forces are, how much, uh, inspections and due diligence they've had before the nego- the final the finalizing of the offer and the PSA. 60 days gives you enough time. And, and here's some of the reasons why. Uh, we need to review the title insurance commitment and the exceptions. We need to get a lien search and an open permit search. We need to get a survey. Uh, we need to get um, an inf- uh, a, a third party zoning letter, which they which they provide, which provides the um, the, the zoning for the municipality and parking spaces, ADA requirements, and some other requirements that institutional lenders are looking for. Um, we also always need it at the, at the least a phase one test. And then depending upon what the phase one test tells us, we may do a sole, bo- sole borings test as well as a phase two test. The reason why we ask for 60 days is because we're relying on outside sources and generally, and you know, a lot of these, a lot of these reports, you know, it takes it at the, at the minimum 20 days. And oftentimes depending upon what the workload is, it could be anywhere from, you know, 30 to 60 days. So that's why we need all of those timeframes as well as um, engaging, um, you know, your outside engine structural engineer to review this, you know, to do the different physical inspections that you need as well. Sure. Have you ever come across where sellers want a really reduced due diligence period and it's a competitive market where you've seen due diligence periods, you mentioned 60 days, being much shorter than that? Absolutely. And especially when we're dealing um, with non-institutional owners of properties, their goal is, especially if there's, if there's a bidding process, when we're dealing with um, you know, multiple offers, um, certainly, their goal is, and, and I've actually seen situations where sellers will not will not allow any type of due diligence. It's a pure as-is transaction, and they tell all the prospective purchasers, "Do your due diligence up front, and then when you're ready, sign a clean contract and move forward." And I, I generally will um, advise my clients against those, but again, ultimately becomes a financial decision. All that we're here, all that I'm here as an attorney is to protect them against themselves most of the time and evaluate all those risks that are involved in, in, involved in the transaction. Got it. So what are, besides the due diligence from a timing perspective, and you mentioned what goes into that time frame, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Are there other common purchase and sale agreement terms that you see a lot of other attorneys maybe overlook or operators kind of overlook? Uh, I can you know, give you one, for example, which would be the sunset period in terms of environmental mm-hmm. uh, lookbacks, um, mm-hmm. being two months, sometimes a seller would want, um, mm-hmm. you know, and not really budging and not really understanding why you need more time on that. Are there other provisions that get overlooked as well a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, a lot of what, what attorneys get involved in is there's a certain section in the contract called representations and warranties. And a lot of those are just asking the seller to make certain representations um, as to certain conditions of the property, the financial conditions, if there's any, um, you know, moratorium on development, if there's any type of code enforcement issues, if there's any uh, changes in use, any, any types of things like that. Um, so I, I would say, you know, the representations and warranties are sections that you know, I, I take a real careful look at, um, and that's what leads to most of the uh, negotiations. Also, um, 
timing, I, I can't stress enough how important timing is because in addition to reps and warranties, um, there's con conditions proceeding to closing. And oftentimes a seller wants you to, the minute you sign a contract, they want you to close. But uh, if I'm representing a buyer in a transaction, I need to make sure that we get all the, all, all the documents the, that, that we need uh, to make an evaluation of the property. Like I'll give you a couple examples. Um, when we're talking about you know, verifying the financials, you can, you, can you can do the financial underwriting, but what we won't know until we, we go nitty gritty and due diligence and request tenant estoppel letters and, and SNDA documents, we need to know, for example, how many, how many uh, tenants are passed on, especially it's even more important now because of the COVID where there's a lot of, there's a lot of tenants in a building where they haven't paid rent or they're on type, some, some type of modification. So, you know, you can look at, the, at a financial, at a, at a, at a P&L for the property, but who knows how um, updated they are. And I'm sure that a lot of sellers don't want to really, you know, shed light on what the, what the uh, you know, the, the collection vacancy rate is right now from March until currently, especially in your area, New Jersey, where still a lot of things are shut down. So, sure. so one of the things that we see in a, it goes to negotiating is I always want to get signed tenant estoppelers by the tenants. Oftentimes, you know, based on, you know, just certain requirements or certain scenarios, that may be very difficult. And oftentimes a seller, instead of signed tenant estoppels, will try to give you a certified rent roll. And even that, though, will have inaccuracy, especially if we're talking about, you know, a hundred plus unit building. It's very difficult to tell what the, the, true, the true story is. And then oftentimes we were negotiating back and forth. Well, if there's evictions going on in the property, especially if you're looking in a value add situation, where you're going to go in and you know it's it's a mess the the the, the property at least uh, the tenancy and you're looking at as value add and going in and trying to clean everything up and raise the rents which you know a lot of your investors I'm sure on the show do you really need to know what perils you're buying and I mean myself as an attorney I know you're very experienced in multifamily it may not be something that we're afraid of doing but certainly for a novice investor it's going to be difficult um, to evaluate because the last thing you want to do is buy a bunch of lawsuits. Exactly. No, that's, that's very well said. Um, can you talk a little bit about it from the lender's perspective? Uh, you mentioned a certified rent rule. I've had to sign certified rent rules before that um, I had to represent and the seller had to represent at closing, which obviously post-closing, it, it changes, especially when you have a value-add property. Um, can, you look at, can you talk about some of the other things, um, particularly maybe Freddie Fannie Mac uh, mm -hmm. looks for that maybe they won't, other lenders won't look at um, to finance multifam larger multifamily properties? Sure, sure. So, so the agency loans, which, which are Fannie and Freddie, have some different requirements. They, a lot of what they're looking for is what the corporate structure is of the, of the purchasing entity. They look at a lot of, you know, how, if, assuming the deal is, if there's a syndication going on, they want to see who's really in control of the property. The other thing that they're concerned about um, and, and I've represented many, a bunch of lenders in, in lending on these transactions as well. And so a lender is always looking for the perspective of what happens if the borrower doesn't pay and I have to take over the property? What really am I inheriting? So um, th there's a oftentimes there's a requirement that the borrowing entity is going to be a, a single purpose bankruptcy remote entity. And generally they want that entity to be a Delaware entity. 
And they also, depending upon the nature of the borrower, they also want to have a, an independent director appointed under Delaware law to protect, to protect the lender in the event there's any dispute over ownership and any type of lender liability issues that would, that would entail um, if there is a foreclosure and they're trying to take the property back over. Um, additionally, there are a variety of required third-party reports like Fannie and Freddie require not, you can't just go to the municipality and get a letter from the municipalities certifying the zoning and the parking spaces. They, they want third-party reports uh, from, you know, institutional um, providers. Um, they also are looking very carefully at the survey the title, the title insurance policy, they look very care. We're always looking very carefully. And I do this the same way on the buyer side, but they're always concerned about what issues are going to pop up if we have to take over the property. They look very carefully at uh, parking spaces to make sure that there's enough parking under code. And oftentimes, especially if you're dealing in, in an older property, like a B or C property, sometimes there's not enough parking under the code. Um, and it, it also comes into play when a prop when there's extensive uh, rehab or additional construction to an existing property the the first couple bit proper the first couple buildings of the multifamily if we're talking about a larger complex they may or may not be up to code or current code and then the other thing we're looking at as a lender and this is always a major issue when it comes to underwriting these types of properties is what's going to be the capex they want to make sure that there's enough there's enough money in escrow or enough money in a net or, or set aside. So in the event that there's any capital improvements to the property and, the, and for some reason, you know, the, the, the borrower doesn't pay, there's enough money that the lender can go in and make the necessary rehabs to the property. Sure. And is that just Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae or do other lenders require? Um, it, it's, 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 it's absolutely required by Fannie and Freddie. Um, but again, it goes to the size of the loan. And also if you're looking, and also many non-recourse loans, require these types of things. Got it. Can you kind of talk about the size a little bit? So for in order to do a Freddie, Fannie Freddie loan, do you have to have a certain loan amount in order to be considered? Yeah, my, my, they're, they're always changing, but I think the, the, the guideline is it has to be at least $20 million or up. I know that they have some other smaller programs. I, you know, I believe, again, um, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a loan originator, but I, I think the minimum loan amount you can have is five million, and that's on their small balance sheet loans. But most of the most of the deals that I've handled are twenty million and up. Yeah, you can actually have a million, <laughs> which is which is interesting. Um, it's very small. I believe it's yeah. pretty pretty max small balance program um, in loan size. So yeah, pretty amazing. Um, so we kind of talked about just you know physical and uh, due diligence, and then lender due diligence. Um, can you talk a little bit about financial a little bit more digging into that so if a seller you know makes a, a rep and you know the buyer already closed and you know figures out there was a huge miscommunication maybe there was a cam charge that um, they were underwriting and um, it, it wasn't true what kind of recourse does the buyer have to the seller uh, like you mentioned evictions too maybe evictions that the seller didn't represent um, mm -hmm. And let's say there's 10 of them at a 50 unit property and that's basically almost 20% of your rent roll. So mm -hmm. how do you, what kind of recourse do you have as, you know, a borrower who already closed? Well, let me, let me just back up one second as relate to that. So generally um, during due diligence, hopefully, ideally we, we find a lot of these things, but if there's any type of concern, 
um, what we generally do is we will we will have it we'll set up an escrow account and we'll set up an escrow account and then basically put put the money in escrow and generally you know I, I always try to have at least like a, a, a three to six month time frame so even for, for post closing um, we're able to um, you know have have that basket of money ideally to, to draw against now in the event it's something where the where my clients and I are totally misleaded misled excuse me misled by the seller there it's not there's a possibility that um, you know, it, we, it's, it's totally missed. And it's, it, you know, very, thank God for in my career, it's happened, you know, I can count it on, on one hand. Um, so then ultimately what you would have to do, and this goes again to negotiating the contract, is how long the representations and warranties are gonna last post-closing. So, and you meant, you talked about that earlier. If I'm a seller, I wanna have it done, the day after closing, I'm, I'm done, there's a clean break. Traditionally, um, we try to, and again, it, it all is, it all, any, when we're dealing in a commercial transaction, everything is up for negotiation. Um, but traditionally, um, we try to have a 12, a 12 month period. Now, again, it, it I will never, ever let my client, uh, close on a transaction on any left, less than a six month look back. Um, but ideally we have 12 months or if there's some major concerns, we, we push it out to 24 months. Yeah, twenty four is very tough to get. Yeah, I mean twelve is twelve is pretty much the standard. Um, we've depending upon again how motivated uh, my buyer is, especially if there's some value that they that they purchase the property, I'll let them go down as low as six. Um, but ultimately, um, if if there's a situation where we find all these things out post closing and there's not a basket of funds to 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 draw against, then we would have to file an, a, a lawsuit in the county where the property is located for breach of contract would be a breach of representation and warranties. Have you and had ideally, a lot of and, Sorry, I apologize. So, so ideally, uh, the seller uh, is liquid. So, you know, oftentimes we're dealing in a situation where there's a single purpose bankruptcy remote entity and generally the, the you know, post, post the representation period, you know, it's, it's often, it's oftentimes where the minute the closing occurs, everything's distributed to the partners and they have no, there's nothing to go against. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no problem. I was just going to ask you, have you had many post-closing disputes and have had, actually had to go to trial around? Um, we, we have, I mean, generally I, I handle kind of some simple like litigation. Like I do a lot of commercial evict, commercial and residential evictions for clients and I've done foreclosure and foreclosure defense. Um, I've had some of those post-closing disputes and generally if it's something like I, I usually handle it up to trial and then I'll bring somebody in. Like we have a trial lawyer in our firm that'll, that'll finish it off. But there have been situations. I mean, um, especially you said how much you love sunny South Florida, but I can tell you that it's not the best place to do business because we have a lot of unscrupulous characters and, and oftentimes people will come down here, you know, to escape whatever they were escaping up North and right. they try to set up shop down here. So, you know, the, 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 the concern we always have is collection because we can go through trial. We can spend a one or two years in court, go to trial, and then we can paper our walls with a judgment that's not enforceable. But there have been situations. I mean, generally speaking, we always learn from, you know, issues that happen in other transactions. And I'm always trying to strive, you know, to draft the, the perfect contract. But if any lawyer tells you that a contract is airtight, 
they're absolutely misleading you because there's always other things. Like for example, with the COVID thing, um, we always have like in, in leases and in contracts force majeure. And so now a lot of business interruption insurers are denying it because they're saying, oh, that's not an act of God. That's not a government shutdown. And so there's, there's going to be one thing to look for on the horizon is there's going to be a lot of business interruption insurance lawsuits, you know, bad faith type of lawsuits or breach sure. of contract lawsuits as a result. of So we're always learning. You know, we can never have the perfect contract. You know, I, I'm, I have my standard contracts that I use as a starting point, but I'm always updating Sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. And it's important to, um, you know, whether you're buying large commercial real estate or even on a small scale to align yourself with a good attorney like Steve, who is pretty experienced because, uh, you know, there's not many good attorneys out there like Steve. Uh, who really well, I appreciate that. that means a lot for me because I know you, you, the experience level that you have. It means a lot, Anthony. Yeah, uh, for sure. And some of these provisions that we talk about, um, in my experience, do get overlooked and we realize it after and we're like, why didn't we really look at this? Cause now we're, you know, we got ourselves in a little bit of issues, which we fortunately mitigated. But um, if you can mitigate that risk up front and, and hash it out between all parties reasonably, um, then that's a different discussion. So I kind of winding down the show just a little bit. Um, so just about you personally, Steve, uh, do you have a favorite business book or um, real estate book that you, you, you read? Sure. It's funny you mentioned because I was, I was just talking about some with some people on LinkedIn about it. Um, and I'll just give you the disclaimer right here. Although I, I don't necessarily agree with the politics that this person has going forward. Um, one of my favorite real estate books, just because it's, it's almost like a fantasy fiction book, is I love the art of the deal. Because I'm one thing I can tell you is I, I'm a deal junkie. And so that really, I mean, just the descriptions and the behind the scenes uh, discussions uh, that took place in some of these large bellwether properties. It was very, very interesting and exciting to me. Great book, for sure. Um, and in terms of your hobbies, what do you do for fun? Sure. Um, well, I enjoy exercising. Um, I have two children at home. I have two small children. I have a, an eight-year-old son and a, and a four-year-old daughter, so they keep me really busy. Um, when I was in um, high, middle school and high school, I played soccer and basketball, so now I'm coaching my son in those sports, and when my daughter's ready, I'll be, I'll be jumping in there. I like reading. Um, like all of us during COVID, I'm, I'm kind of a Netflix uh, binge watcher, so um, those are kind of the things that keep me busy right now. For sure. And, and I love the people, beach, of course, living in South Florida. Well, definitely. Um, how can people find you, Steve? Uh, sure. You can, you can find me. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. And I, I'm on Twitter. At my, my Twitter handle is WallaceSteven73. Uh, and then we have a very comprehensive website. Um, it's thewallacelawgroup.com. Once again, thewallacelawgroup.com. And then we also have a YouTube channel, The Wallace Law Group, where, I'm, where I post some certain videos and instructional videos. And, and generally, we have, we have a new series that we've rolled out. It's called Ask an Attorney Anything. And I usually post uh, weekly videos. And again, if you have any ideas or anything you're interested in, I'm happy to post a video on it. Sure. And we're going to provide links to everything Steve mentioned in the comments section of our social media and also on iTunes in the description box. Uh, so Steve, really appreciate you coming on our show today. I think our listeners uh, got something out of this for sure, at least I hope. Um, but you know, one takeaway is, is you really gotta um, understand your due diligence and make sure you do as much as you can upfront, um, even prior to submitting your offer, even though it's very hard, um, but it kind of mitigates some further issues 
um, down the line uh, when you actually do go under contract. Um, so really appreciate you coming on, Steve, and hope to have you on again soon. Well, truly a pleasure and, and good luck. Stay safe and hope, hope your business remains profitable. You too, Steve. Thank you. Thank you.